Hello and welcome along once again to It'll Be Alright in the 90s. Nostalgia. Together, we'll crack it. I'm Stu Joslin and joining me as always is Alex Greenwood. Greeny, how are you mate? And from that little laugh you gave there, I can tell you understand the reference there in the intro. <laughs> I don't, I don't, it sounds familiar, but I don't know exactly what it is. Um, okay. I was, I was just amused by the, the familiarity of it. Um, please, <laughs> please confirm what, what it is. Car crime, together we'll crack it. Oh, of course it is, yeah. Perfect. I'm good, I'm good, yeah, this is an interesting topic something maybe a bit more serious than we normally do or potentially more serious than we normally do so we'll see how it goes we'll give it a light touch and try not to get too grisly i don't think we want to do that do we, we don't want to get into that area and as popular as that is in today's cultural landscape we, we don't <laughs> want to it's not a bandwagon we want to jump onto too no quickly. no there are plenty of other podcasts that will serve that far better than us so if you weren't able to tell from the introduction tonight, we're looking at crime in the 90s. And we've got a very suitable sponsor for tonight's episode as well, because tonight we are sponsored by the good people at Crooklock. Just quote the code all right 90s to receive 10% off any stop lock or disc lock product at participating branches of Argos. That's Crooklock prevents car crime. Fantastic. Yeah. With the night's drawing in and, and more darkness, it's the sort of time when you really want to be protecting your your Ford Fiestas and your Orions and whatnot with uh, with some better car security. So that's a fantastic time for them to get on board and we're mm-hmm. glad to have them as sponsors. Yes, thank you very much. And if you could send through a couple of disc clocks, I always really like those, the massive metal discs that just think, yeah. clamped over the steering wheel <laughs> and just locked in place. If only yeah. I had one on the blue Ford Fiesta back in 2008, yeah. you know, who knows? It might still be driving it today. Yeah, we used to have one of the ones that went on the hooked from the steering wheel down to the brake pedal or whatever it was in the Ford Escort Mark IV, of course, and uh, it protected it just fine. It was never stolen. Um, it, it did end up upside down in a ditch, but that was because we sold it to a ne'er do well, um, <laughs> not realizing that it was going to be used for something dodgy, but it was never stolen. So, uh, testament to the power of the crook lock. Stu, I've got a question for you. What is your favourite TV detective's car? There can only be one. Um, I know what you're going to say, but go on. <laughs> Spender's Ford Sierra Cosworth. Yes, I thought that's what you would say. I'm going to actually give you a quick quiz. That was going to be one of my questions. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you a detective name. I wanted to say what their car is. Okay. So first off is uh, Inspector Morse. Uh, Jaguar Mark II. Correct. Bergerac. Oh, Bergerac. Um, that's a difficult one. I'm gonna say Triumph for some sort. Yeah, bang on. Yeah, Triumph Roadster, 1947 Triumph Roadster. So a real oldie there. Excellent. And finally, Ray Vecchio <laughs> from South, of course. Now, he was um, very proud of his car, wasn't he? It was a big was. part of the story. He was. It's it's green and it's a Buick. It is exactly. Yeah, it's a oh, Buick Riviera. Fantastic. Very good. Three for three. Hold on there, one second. Just wait a minute. Listeners, I am on tenterhooks <laughs> just as much as you are. I've got something for you here. Look at that. Oh, lovely. <laughs> lovely. It's a it's a Corgi Spender Special Edition Fortiera diecast. Uh, this is a 116th. Got it off eBay a little while ago. Opening doors, uh, registration plate G325WVW, which is accurate to the series as well. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's really great to, to have that adorning 
one of the bookshelves in the house. It's always a little conversation starter. Well, hopefully I can find a diecast of my new favourite detective's TV car. Ooh, because I have just discovered my new favourite TV detective's car. I've just started re-watching on ITVX Inspector Frost. Do mm-hmm. you remember what car Inspector Frost drives? Now, I've actually only watched one episode, so it might change. But in the first episode, I'm going to assume this is his car for the series, or at least the early series. Can you remember what it is? Now, I've never seen an episode of Inspector Frost. I'm afraid it's, it's called A Touch of Frost, isn't it? It's not called Inspector Frost. Yes. I'm ashamed to say, but I know he's supposed to be a bit of a Columbo, shabby kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Yes. Detective type, isn't he? So I would say nothing... Certainly nothing like a Triumph Roadster or a uh, or a Mark II Jag. Just for the yucks, I'll I'll uh, suggest it might be a Yugo, but I don't know. Go, go on. <laughs> that would be amazing. It's not actually that far off that. It's actually very. Basically, you just had it in your hand because it's a Mark II Ford Sierra 1.6L, so a very mm-hmm. uh, a base model. Late 80s Ford Blue, my favourite Ford colour, bar none. And the registration is D843MPP, which makes it 8687. Mm-hmm. Now, Frost first aired in 92, so it's not, this is not a new car. This has been around on the road for, for about five years. Uh, and of course, I went on the DVLA checker, and it's registered to a grey Mitsubishi. So mm. I'm not sure what's going on there. There's, there's a mystery within a mystery there. It's currently no longer registered on the road, which is unsurprising. But mm-hmm. if anyone knows what happened to that Mitsubishi, or the Sierra, or you want to get in touch and tell us what your favourite TV detective's car is, and we would love to hear from you, but I now have my favourite, Stu has his favourite, both four Sierras, um, so let us know what yours is. I know it's the case uh, with, with TV cars, or it certainly used to be, that the car would often have a real registration plate and a prop registration plate. I know for a fact that the yellow Daimler that Arthur Daly drives in the glory years of Minder had a, a prop plate that was used on it. Um, so that could be the case here. And then the prop plate was registered subsequently to uh, a real car. But I guess we'll never know. Yeah, interesting. Two more things on the bulletin board for you here, Stu. Uh, I've discovered a new contender for the most 90 slang term, which occurred to me for some reason this week. And that's tight. Describing something or someone as tight. As in, don't be tight to mean don't be unfair or don't be mean which I think you don't get that anymore, do you? Have you heard, when was the last time you heard someone say that? No, certainly not. Um, maybe tight as in being mean with money is the context in which you would hear it these days, but but certainly not in any other. I have a clear memory of a dog waste bin on my walk home from primary school having the legend Paul Smith is tight written on the side <laughs> in marker pen. And that was there for many years on the way home from Caution Primary School. Um, so I don't know whether Paul Smith was indeed tight or not. But hey, Paul, if you're listening, come on, get in touch. Let us know. Yeah. And if you were tight, which which form of tight were you? Were you yes. a bit yeah. of a meanie or were you just tight with money? Could go either way. But that's my contender for most 90 slang term for the week. It hadn't occurred to me for the last episode that we were interviewing an actual previous what's the most 90s award winner because of, of course you chose stiltskin didn't you for the most 90s british rock band i hadn't registered mm-hmm. that's probably the first time we've actually had a most 90s winner on the pod yes yes indeed and we're proud to announce it next week craig forrest is going to be on the show i <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, would would that we could would that we could but no you're quite right that, that passed me by as well um I was going to say, if I got the chance again, what a what an episode that was last time out with Peter. 
one other thing that has arrived in our PO box from I don't know where exactly. This is this is sort of part of the part of the issue with this. This this great mystery mm-hmm. that's going on behind the scenes here. This relates to a message we got from the newly installed uh, dad of the pod. You'll probably remember from a few episodes ago that there were some goings on there and some connections to the Masons. Well, we've had another message from new dad of the pod into our Instagram account, uh, which I will read out now. Ever since my elevation to the rank of dad of the pod, I've been listening assiduously to your podcast. And I must say it feels a pleasant hour or so between 11 days and my pre-lunch nap. I was in the Masonic Lodge the other afternoon listening to a very interesting talk about the history and evolution of the Masonic handshake when Jeff sat down beside me and nudged me awake. Here you go, he said, stuffing a £20 note into my top pocket, on account. Well, the speaker had only got up to the mid-19th century reverse thumb handshake, so we withdrew to the smoking room and ordered a half bottle of Wincarnis. Jeff suggested I take advantage of my new status to give something back to the community by opening care homes, garden fates, supermarkets and so on. Also, charge a small fee to cover admin expenses. He said he could probably set it up for me, but it would take a bit of seed money to get it going. So I gave him back the 20 quid and another tenner on top. He told me I shouldn't bother you two about it as you were so busy with research and rehearsals. They rehearse that stuff, I quipped, but Jeff didn't seem to hear me. Anyway, if you could drop a mention on my future public appearances into your pods, I'd be grateful. I can't do any in the near future as Alex's mother has been writing things on my face with an indelible felt-tip pen while I was asleep and it'll take a week or two to wear off. So it sounds like more goings on. I don't like how much business around this podcast is conducted in the Masonic Hall. No, I know. And it always seems to end up with us lining other people's pockets. Yeah, mainly Jeff's by, by the sound of it. There may be more to come with that story. If you are approached by someone using the um, 19th century reverse thumb handshake, you know that's quite likely to be connected to this podcast, and we we suggest that you um, walk away quickly. But um, or if you come across anybody who's got felt tip pen writing on their face, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so keep an eye open. There could well be some local buildings and fates and whatnot being opened by Dad of the Pod, which would be good. Could be a bit of publicity at least for us i mean that's the only good thing that could come out of this by the sound of it but anyway just another quick update on the the shady goings on behind the scenes at this this podcast i've got some 90s football shirt news for you i am always up for that please go ahead cash your mind back and we're going to be doing this a bit later on actually as well but cash your mind back to our very first episode can you remember what the shirt was that i identified as my my holy grail the shirt to end all shirts the one that i must add to my collection before i pass on from this mortal curl i think it was the aston villa muller stained glass goalkeeper jersey correct 10 points very very excitingly this week one of these shirts has actually come up on ebay in an adult size you only ever seem to get them in child sizes i have a look every so often there's one that's come up uh, in a size large i've been watching it on ebay there's about four days left to go, and it's already up to £370. So I'm not sure I'm going to be able to uh, to justify dipping in, dipping in my pocket. But then it's only going to appreciate in value, isn't it? So maybe I should suck it up now. Let's treat it as an investment. Yeah, you never know. Trigger. Not that I want to put you off, but I would be... Is, is the bottom ever going to fall out of this market? 
prompted by the the last Aston Villa stained glass kit finally coming off the market. That'll, <laughs> that might precipitate it, or everyone will start trying to flog them because they've seen how much they go for. That's always what I think. What's your pod salary again? I think we're we're paid the same on this, aren't we? It's a nominal fee. I'm not at yeah. liberty to discuss it on the air, but uh, it's a nominal fee. Let's put it like yeah. that. It's probably not going to stretch to that, is it? So. I don't that, think so. I don't think you can purchase things on eBay with lunch and vouchers either anyway. So <laughs> that could be a problem. In that case, I think it's going to have to it's going to have to be left, isn't it? You're going to have to just watch the auction end with with regret, but also safe in the knowledge that you have saved yourself a, a considerable amount of money, which you can spend on maybe four or five other shirts that you desire mm-hmm. at just a bit less. I will keep an eye on it. I'll make a note of the final price and I'll come back on the episode next time and let you know what it went for and how much money I saved. But yes, I'm afraid at this moment in time, I'm I'm just going to have to let it go and be, a, be an interested bystander. I think next time we do this pod, you'll come on the screen. You'll be wearing the, you'll be wearing the top, but there'll be no furniture behind you. <laughs> the spender corky is going to have been sold. <laughs> That's going to have gone. Speaking of which, time now for today's What's the Most 90s. And Stu, I am asking you what the Most 90s rebrand is. Mm -hmm. Well, this caused many ructions when it occurred in the 90s. I've gone for the rebrand of Opal Fruits to Starburst. Mm. This was such a huge thing in the late 90s. They've been called Opal Fruits since 1960. And here's a little bit of uh, interesting information. Uh, they were named Opal Fruits by a chap called Peter Phillips. And then in brackets here, it says, but he was known as Peter Pfeffer at the time. A little bit of information for you there. Um, and he won five pounds for winning the competition to name the Opal Fruit Suite. So I hope he invested that well. Maybe he used it at the deep poll office to change his name from Pfeffer to Phillips. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> um, but they were known as Opal Fruits, um, you know, globally right up until 1998, uh, when they were phased out in the UK and, and of course, turned into Starburst, which they still are now. I don't really have a lot to say about the background or the history of the change. It was obviously a successful change because it's been Starburst ever since that change in 1998. It's, it's never gone back. But Opal Fruits is just a much better name. I just prefer okay. Opal Fruits to Starburst yeah. in, in every conceivable way. It sounds quaint. It sounds British. Obviously, this was a rebrand. Oh, you know, we've got to judge the name. We have to make it something more exciting and and uh, something that's going to pop out on the shelves. But there was nothing wrong with Opal Fruits. I'm partial to an Opal Fruit from time to time. I still call them Opal Fruits myself. I'm still uh, carrying that flag. But yes, I've gone for uh, the change from Opal Fruits to Starburst. Mm, yeah, it's a good one. I think Opal Fruits also, it makes your mouth water, just that name, whereas Starburst doesn't, doesn't sound necessarily like a sweet. But I think it's actually, it was rebranded to bring it in line with existing products around the world. That's why it was done. The same as Snickers to, right. to Marathon and GIF to SIF. It's because they just wanted to have one name mm-hmm. everywhere rather than different ones. Not that that's an excuse. There's no, there is no excuse for it. It's a disgrace. But <laughs> it's a, yeah, I had notes on this as well. So it was definitely one I was thinking of. But my answer is also from the year 1998, possibly even more of a controversy at the time because it is the rebranding of Cocoa Pops to Choco Krispies, which, as we all know, caused such uproar. It led to a million signatures on a petition, uh, a national petition, which was handed over to the to the people at Big Cereal. Um, I'm not sure who, oh, Kellogg's, 
to Kellogg's, that's their name. And it was reversed, yeah. So this was a very rare, possibly the only example of the decade, and the only one I can think of, where a rebrand has been reversed because it was so unpopular. And it was another example of the company trying to bring the name in line with a national, international branding where it was already known as Choco Krispies, and I think it still is. Um, but we just, we, you know, we pulled together the Blitz spirit, and um, that's what can that's what can happen with um, with people power. And on our shelves to this day, it's still Cocoa Pops. Mm-hmm. I suppose with Rice Krispies, Choco Krispies makes sense to have them as a duo. Mm. They are in effect the same cereal, one just has a different flavouring. But again, Cocoa Pops, Choco Krispies, Cocoa Pops is the the far superior name. Rolls off the tongue, very very familiar very very famous and it just goes to show that these activities where products are rebranded in order to bring them into line across the world sometimes are unnecessary sometimes they don't work sometimes people don't want them we know what cocoa pops are we don't we don't need to have them renamed so, to make them similar to another cereal that you also have i think we are all agreed on that and you'll find many people across the country i think still referring to opal fruits and maybe even marathons although that's quite interesting isn't it that we were born post sorry we weren't born but we were raised and came of age post rebrand with the snickers from marathon that i never felt like i should still keep calling it marathon because it meant anything to me but maybe i guess as young people now who will just always know them as starburst and will you know think us think of us as granddads for being Hmm. upset about the demise of opal fruits but such is that's the world of nostalgia i suppose so are we suggesting then that we should rename gen z as the starburst generation I think we should, yeah. Or alternatively, we can refer to ourselves as the Opal Fruit Generation. Either way, let's just start referring to every generation based on the rebranding of sweets and cereals based <laughs> in that that period. I like it. That's something I can get behind. But what's going to go in the ledger? I mean, they're the same. They're, they're so similar, aren't they? I, I don't know how you choose one or the other. I feel more strongly about Opal Fruits, I think, than I do about Cocoa Pops. So let's put them in. Well, the other thing, of course, to to bear in mind is that People Power did get Cocoa Pops changed back, whereas, of course, Starburst is still Starburst and Mm. the 90s Opal Fruit name did die out at that point. So maybe on that basis, the Opal Fruit should go in the ledger. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. I'll have a blackcurrant one, please, if you've got one. Hey, you know what? They've stopped doing. They've they've amalgamated lemon and lime into one green sweet. There's no there's no yellow ones anymore. You're joking. I know it gets worse, doesn't it? It's clearly been a while since I've had some Starburst then because I had no idea. I should just say before we wrap up, what's the most 90s rebrand? That subject came courtesy of wife of the pod, Beth. Many thanks to her for coming up with that one and taking some of the pressure off of us to keep coming up with subjects to speak about. Very much appreciated by me. Just time for a little bit of anecdote roulette. Um, Alex, I've got some new entries onto the list this time round. So let me give you the full list of everything that's here, because last time I only gave you a couple of options. Let me remind you of the full set and then you can choose which one you want to hear about. So we've got still at the top of the list is the biggest telling off I ever received at primary school. We've got running into a plate glass window at a branch of Argos. We've got Angus Deaton's one foot in the groin. We've got trapped in a Jaguar. Uh, We've got Mother's Decorative Plates, we've got The Time I Attended a Christian Festival by Accident, or we've got The Man with a Salt Packet Stuck to His Bum. Which one of those would you like? They're all such enticing headlines. Um, I'm going to go for Angus Deaton's One Foot in the Crotch. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, it's one foot in the groin. One foot in the groin, okay, there you go. Yes. Angus Deaton's one foot in the groin really is a, it's a coverall for a topic that I think actually we could maybe do a full episode on one of these days if we uh, if we ever get the chance, which is the 90s Christmas stocking filler VHS, of which there were hundreds. Um, and of course, the king of the genre is Danny Baker's own goals and gaffs. I don't think anybody will ever dispute that, maybe with Nick Hancock's football nightmares, etc., coming a close second. They were all at it in the mid-90s, and one such tape was Angus Deaton's One Foot in the Groin, which I bought from a charity shop when I was about 11 or 12. So during this time, around about the early to mid-2000s, when people were beginning to switch from VHS to DVD players, lots and lots of VHSs were starting to turn up in charity shops. And I would go around the charity shops in Corsham, Chippenham, wherever I was, and see if I could find any of these sorts of tapes, because I absolutely love them. Danny Baker's own goals and gas was the first one I ever had. And that was my gateway drug. After that, I I would try and find any tape I could find that was of that bent. And I found uh, Angus Deaton's One Foot in the Groin, who I knew from Have I Got News For You, obviously, and and One Foot in the Grave, also hence the title. And this resurfaced on YouTube recently. I've been waiting for somebody to digitise it and put it on YouTube for some time. Um, so that I could watch it again it's a particularly poor effort um it's 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 an hour of clips of sports people it's not necessarily things going wrong but it's cheating bad tackles fighting that that sort of area and it's famous for containing a tackle by uh, a Southampton player called Tommy Woodrington which happened during a, a cup tie against Port Vale which I've never seen anywhere else it was only ever a clip on that video and it's the worst tackle I've ever seen. And I'm not sure he even gets booked. A cup tie between Southampton and Port Vale gives Tommy Widrington the opportunity to kick John Jeffers in the Dell. So it's full of stuff like that. But I just wanted to, to really tell you about my addiction to VHSs of this ilk during that time period, the ones that came out in the 90s. Neil Morrissey's footballers behaving badly is another particularly bad effort, I recall, um, which, uh, which again, if, if anybody's got that and they're able to put it up on YouTube, please do, because I'd love to see that again. It's it's very, very bad. I think Neil even said so himself in an episode of Fantasy Football League. Um, he was on around the time. He said, don't buy it. It's crap. Um, and I hope with your agreement, I could take you through my favourites of the genre in a more detailed way. But yes, that's uh, that's one foot in the groin for you. Fantastic. I like that. The only videos like that I had... I'm slightly ashamed to say are Jeremy Clarkson videos. They were sort of Top Gear adjacent. So things like, I can't remember the names, Car Carnage and Car Apocalypse <laughs> and stuff like that, which I did really like. And there are still those tapes in my parents' house somewhere tucked mm-hmm. away. Yeah, he did just... those. When when DVDs replaced VHSs, he continued to do those mm, for yeah. years and years and years. And they all have the same theme music. I'll play some in on the edit here so you can hear the the Clarkson VHS theme music because that stayed the same for 20 years. Greetings and welcome to one of the great debates of the modern age. What is the best car in the world ever? Well, I don't know. Guess we'll just have to go find out.
So on to the main subject of today's episode, which is crime in the 90s. We've each picked a couple of the crimes that stick in our minds from the decade to discuss in a bit further detail. Alex, why don't you kick us off with your first notable crime of the decade? So my first choice is actually two crimes rolled into one. So this was two crimes that happened in the mid and late 90s. On September the 7th, 1996, Tupac Shakur was shot and killed when he was aged 25 by unknown assailants in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas. And then on the 8th of March, 1997, after the Soul Train Awards in LA, Biggie Smalls, or Christopher Wallace to give him his real name, was gunned down also by unknown assailants in a drive-by shooting. So I think everyone will know about these these murders now. They are something that has just been written about, talked about for every year since they happened, I think. And as much as this is obviously a 90s podcast, the Tupac murder especially is actually quite topical at the moment because I don't know if you noticed this in the news, Stu, that um, a character called Dwayne Keith Keefe D. Davis was arrested and charged with Tupac's murder in September this year. So it's just happened after what is that 30 years now that it's Mm -hmm. almost 30 years since it happened but i just i've chosen them because i just think they're like i said they're so inextricably linked to the 90s and they are key elements in the history of gangster rap which was hitting its peak in in the mid 90s early to mid 90s with people like tupac and biggie smalls representing the west coast and the east coast respectively and it was a culmination of the of the rivalry between those two coasts and so, yeah, I think they are crimes that are linked to a specific moment in a specific genre of the 90s. Uh, obviously, the musical output of both artists hasn't really been hindered too much by their deaths, especially Tupac, who has continued to release music ever since. We obviously talked about changes on the episode we did with Channel Lem on the Random Chart mm-hmm. of 99, which is a song that I've grown to like more and more over the years. Uh, in the episode, I did allude to the final lyrics of the final verse, being very haunting considering what happened to Tupac subsequently and I do again urge people to go and listen to that in fact we might put a clip in here if we can get it past the YouTube censors it won't work if I read it out it's a sort of sort of lyric that just if I in my northwest Wiltshire accent read it off a page on this podcast it's not really going to have the same impact so I will let Tupac say it himself but it's uh yeah it's a great song and obviously many albums as well released by tupac and of course puff daddy who released I'll Be Missing You in 1997 after the death of Biggie Smalls, which was a number one in the UK. I think everyone knows that, the <laughs> the sample of Every Breath You Take by Sting being the basis of the song. It was a, a massive song with a, with a very famous video. And this does allow me to bring to your attention, Stu, one of my favourite YouTube videos, which I am frequently found to be watching in a sort of with, with, with a sort of grim fascination, basically. Right, um, just hold I've, on a second. Hold on. I've sent you what a link to it. has too. Bobby Davro falling over in the stocks got <laughs> to do with this? That's a different YouTube video that I watch all the time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's have a look here. I'm intrigued. But imagine the song they would have written about Bobby Davro if he died in that accident. <laughs> 
So, Stu, the main thing I think you need to watch out for in this video is, well, firstly, Sting's great um, vocal harmonies, which are genuinely good. They're not on the recorded track, of course, mm-hmm. um, but I think they really, really work really well on the on the live version. Uh, and Faith Evans' live vocal being really great as well. But then on the other side of the uh, of the seesaw of quality is Puff Daddy's dancing, which I think <laughs> will come in after the choir's been singing you'll you'll see it shortly let me know when he uh, comes through the door i will do okay so just for the listeners this is puff daddy as he was known then performing i'll be missing you with faith evans and sting at the 1997 mtv vmas so let's see what happens okay so we've got a large choir and uh, some uh, vt of, of biggie smalls on the screen and here they come <laughs> <laughs> that's um considering the content and what the song's about it's that's mind-boggling <laughs> it's some movement isn't it it's, it is it's akin to an injured pigeon flapping <laughs> around the stage and here's I, I, mr sting yeah yeah I, I think sting is probably glad that he can't see what's going on behind him because i think he's at the front of the stage isn't he so mm. yeah god knows what faith evans thinking Wow, that is really something. Anyway, yeah, there you go. Also, at the end, he does say, uh, "Biggest more so, say, clap your hand to Princess Diana." So that's nice for the uh, for the royalists among the among the audience. But that aside, I yes, I, I wanted to cho- choose those murders just because it gave me another opportunity to talk about gangster rap in the nineties, which is something I'm very fond of. And needless to say, it was a massive loss for the world of of rap and music as a whole. I think uh, Biggie considered one of the greatest rappers of all time. Tupac was uh, one of the most unique rappers and like a really important voice for social justice, which was at a time when that was quite rare in rap music. So, yeah, big losses. And um, that was my first choice. I've only just realised after having looked it up because I was scared that I was making some sort of mistake that Biggie Smalls and the Notorious B.I.G. are the same person. Mm. It took me a long time to work that out as well. Um, so it's totally fair enough. For my first choice, I've gone for a slightly different crime. And I want to take you back to where it all began, Alex, for us. Nearly what's coming up for three years now that, that this that this happened. So can you remember what it was that, that kicked us off down this, down this path and got us to 65-odd episodes of this podcast as we sit here today? Can you remember what it was that, that started it all off for us? I assume is the hell for leather thrilling chase along the M25, which appeared on police camera action at some point in a decade, which you posted on my Facebook wall, I guess, two or three years ago. We were commenting on the great 90s cars in it and the, and the, the whole world of police camera action. And then I think one of us said we should do a podcast on this, something like that. And then lo and behold, a few weeks later, you messaged me saying, no, seriously, should we do a podcast on this? <laughs> and here we are, two and a bit years later, talking about crime. Well, it only seemed right to give a tip of the hat to our OG video clip that we that we did a watch along of. This took place on the 27th of November 1990. So as we record, we're only five days away from the 35th anniversary of this particular crime. For those of you who haven't seen it, we'll put a link in the episode description, of course. But this is as Alex says, a chase down the M25, 
between a red and white transit van, which was ferrying a couple of burglars and their trove, which they had been uh, before the clip starts, they had been throwing it out of the van in order to try and get rid of the evidence because they were now being chased by the police. They're trying to use the M25 to get away from the police. And it doesn't end all that well for them, does it? It's a very famous police camera action clip. And possibly, apart from the liver run, of course, the liver run notwithstanding, I think my favourite clip of the entire police camera action canon. I was going to suggest to you, as the clip is only about four and a half minutes long, do you think we should do a little mini watch along now? I think it would be insulting not to. OK, let's get queued up. Two men in the red and white van are on the run along the M25 after a burglary. The police are eager to keep them on the motorway. Not only is it safer for the public, but it also makes it easier to control the pursuit until backup forces arrive. So, as I said, it's the 27th of November 1990. It's 25 past three in the afternoon. Uh, Alex, what can you tell us about the vehicles in the early part of this chase? Well, the police car that is most prominently in shot. Oh, hang on. There's a Pickford's removal van there mm-hmm. in that yep. classic blue and red livery, which I do love. Um, but the police car I, that we can see, not the one that's being is filming, but the one that is on camera is a Rover 800, possibly a Vitesse. It's a, definitely a fastback with the jam sandwich livery, um, doing a good job of keeping it steady. You've seen the first incident there of the police car driving on the inside lane to keep the van on the motorway. What the police want to avoid is the van getting off the motorway and causing more danger to the public in more built up areas and built up roads. So they've kept them on the motorway uh, for the time being. It's quite a dramatic time of day for the the chase, isn't it? It's quite a a stunning sunset happening to the left of the screen there, which really adds some drama to it. The sun setting over Greater London. And we've got two, you can even see the silhouettes of the two occupants of the van. uh, Yeah, I love that. (laughs) Iconic rear windows of the transit. Yeah, it's funny because just seeing their silhouettes of the heads, they just look quite calm because they're just motionless, you know, slightly moving to the right and left a little bit. But it sort mm-hmm. of gives it a slightly cartoonish edge, which I like. They're keeping well within the speed limit at this point as well. Yeah, well, they don't want another thing on the book, do they? they don't want another no, no, I suppose not. No, no, there's enough going on. There's enough going on. <laughs> um, just passing a Peugeot 4 or 5 there that was keeping pace for, for a while there. Oh, I think there's a Mark IV Escort that's just being overtaken in the slow lane. Probably will not be interesting to the listeners if I just list every car that I, <laughs> I see, but it's very hard to resist. There's quite a uh, quite an iconic moment of the video has just gone past there um, when one of the burglars throws a remote control out of the passenger <laughs> window in order to try and dispose of some more evidence. I suppose that's quite a good thing. You don't want a VCR bouncing along the motorway towards you, do you? In the, yeah. uh, when you've got no way to um, try and avoid it. Do you reckon they were throwing stuff out in the order that they least cared about it? So they like <laughs> they were really hoping that they didn't have to throw out the big TV. So they would just get rid of all the other stuff first. And then it would have been a big TV in those days as well, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would have been a probably, big one, definitely. Big tube one, yeah. <laughs> so we're coming up to another motorway exit that the police driver is going to expertly block off. But the police but... car gets forced off. The van stays on the motorway. Very clever uh, getaway driving there. If I... Ah, now here. Oh, hang on. <laughs> so what's happened, Stu? Well, we, we've now cut to a couple of minutes later, I think, and there is now a uh, Mark One or Two police Range Rover weaving across the lanes. <laughs> the somebody roll van. there, isn't there? <laughs> Somehow managing to look even more unstable than the van itself. Yeah. Well, this is really something else. You can see the silhouette of the um, police driver there <laughs> as well. Yeah. 
somehow keeping upright. I think the uh, the passenger in the police uh, Range Rover starts waving out of the window, and that, there he goes. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not sure what they were waving. If they're waving to the cameras, or oh, what mm-hmm. is that? What is that police car coming down the fast lane now? Is that a Sierra yeah. Estate? That was exactly what I was going to say. Yes. Anyway, here comes the most iconic moment of the entire chase, which comes at the very end of the chase. The van finally decides to leave the motorway and immediately at the top of the junction, top of the slip road, crashes. With another junction coming up, police move to surround the van and again try to keep it on the M25. It escapes, but not for long. Very, very much pre-ABS breaks, wasn't it, this era? Very much so, very much so. So that is one of my favourite crimes of the 90s. It's a clip I've watched often. I'm not sure I've watched it as often as you've watched Puff Daddy's Dancing on the other clip, but it's one that I've always enjoyed. But there's there's similar levels of unwieldiness in both videos, isn't there, I think? <laughs> They're really. Are we suggesting that Puff Daddy's Dancing is akin to the body roll of an early Range Rover? <laughs> I think we might be, yeah. <laughs> Um, interestingly, the passenger in the red and white van got a longer prison sentence than the driver did. He must have said something. Uh, I guess so. Oh, well, I wonder where they are now. If you are listening, if you were in that transit van and you're listening to this podcast, <laughs> please do get in touch because we would love to hear from you. Tell us from your point of view what what happened. Yeah, yeah. If you were there, if you were the 405 driver just holding it steady in the middle lane while everything went, went on around you. Um, yeah, yeah, please do let us know. Absolutely. We'd love to hear from you. You know, someone somewhere in this country was moving house on that day and all their belongings were in that Pickford lorry <laughs> and they'll never know how famous their belongings were for one one moment in, in the 90s. Exactly. These are the things, these are the important questions that this podcast tasks itself with answering. Yeah, exactly. This is what the people want. Yeah. Who was moving house? Who had their stuff going down the M25 in late November 1990 when all that was kicking off at the same time? We, d- we want to know and we won't rest until we find out. For my second choice then, I well, let me, let me see if you can work out what it is, Stu. 7th of April 1998, Will Rogers Memorial Park, Beverly Hills. Any idea? Ah, would this involve one George Michael by any chance? It will indeed involve George Michael. A public restroom. George Michael is arrested by an undercover police officer, Marcelo Rodriguez, in a sting operation uh, for engaging in lewd behaviour, um, which is obviously something that was very big news in this country and in America as well, I'm sure, being that George Michael was an, a huge name and still, well, still is. Obviously, he's no longer with us, but is a is a massive name in, in pop history. In the words of Michael himself, George Michael, it's weird, you know, when I refer to George Michael, you either call him George or you call him Michael, and neither sounds quite right. <laughs> yeah, true, um, true. But in an MTV interview subsequent to the event, uh, Michael stated, I got followed into the restroom and then this cop, I didn't know he was a cop, obviously, he started playing this game, which I think is called I'll Show You Mine, You Show Me Yours, and then when you show me yours, I'm going to nick you, um, which I thought was quite a funny um, way of him describing the situation, which is obviously, well, almost tore his career apart but he he's always seemed to have had some good humor about it um so the legal results were of course yeah. he pleaded no contest to the charge he got a, a small nominal fine of less than a thousand dollars 
uh, and was sentenced to 80 hours of community service. And that was, so that was the legal results. But then the personal results, I think, were much more satisfying. So having been confronted with this, I think it's probably safe to say, fairly homophobic policing uh, action mm-hmm. that um, threatened to ruin his career and his personal life, uh, he could have obviously he could have gone into re- into hiding. He could have retreated from it entirely. He could have pretended it didn't happen. He could have been and would have been very justified in being very angry about it all. But instead of all that, he came up with what I think is the absolute perfect response to this uh, travesty, which is, of course, the video for Outside, which was released in October of the same year. Anyone who doesn't know, we will post a link to the video below. The video is set partly inside a grimy public toilet, which at a certain point in the song transforms into a fabulous glitter ball adorned dance floor slash public toilet so the urinals turn around and then they're replaced by really shiny um chrome plated um urinals and there's a yeah, glitter ball and, and disco lights and and michael is of course dressed as an la cop or a sexy <laughs> la cop a very tight uniform and it's basically the perfect response that he could have given i think it's the equivalent of blowing a raspberry in musical form i think to the lapd and all of the homophobes who were probably relishing the arrest when it first happened. Subsequent to this, the policeman in question, uh, Rodriguez, claimed that the video was mocking him and took or tried to take George Michael to court. Uh, I think he was asking for several million dollars for it, but the the judge threw it out, saying that well, there was no case basically, and that you can't be you can't take it to court if you're a public official like that. So it was a very satisfying result in that respect as well, and. So, yeah, that's why I've chosen it. I think it was a pretty unpleasant, unseemly event tinged with homophobia. And it was turned around into a great triumph, I think. And as we've all subsequently found out, after his very sad death in 2016, George Michael, it turned out, was a very, very good egg. Mm -hmm. And um, he's sadly missed. So I think this might be one of his greatest triumphs. So I wanted to add something a little bit more upbeat for this episode. And that's why I've chosen it. That's a great choice. My mum, a huge George Michael fan, had outside on CD single. I remember the video well. And as you say, it's the absolute correct response and just worked so well in repairing what little damage his reputation had actually suffered as a result of this. I think he also had a a Parkinson special not long afterwards. I think he says something like, in future, I'll keep my willy where nobody can see it or something like that. I think that's what he says, just just to sort of refer to it and break the ice over it, you know. But no, no, an absolutely wonderful choice. So um, I, I couldn't agree more with that. So what's your second choice then, Stu? What would you say has been the biggest football story in the news uh, over the last seven days as we record this? I'd say it would have to be Everton's financial penalty being docked 10 points for some financial irregularities. Absolutely. Well, I want to talk about a similar type of crime that happened a lot closer to home. I want to talk about Swindon Town in the early 1990s and the illegal payment scandal that engulfed the club up until 1992. There's an unofficial Swindon Town YouTube channel which has very, very helpfully edited together about 15 minutes of local news reports from the time that tells the entire story in sequence. So this is from BBC Local News and ITV Local News. And it's great to see some of the uh, really well-loved local anchors in action in this clip. People like Bruce Hockin, Patricia Yorston, who I think we've mentioned on the podcast before. So uh, it's worth looking at the video for that alone. 
charge of the first division told a fraud trial today of the huge amounts of money they were paid in illegal deals. Swindon's former manager, Lou Macari, the former chairman, Brian Hillier, and accountant Vince Farah all deny tax evasion charges. One player said he was given £1,500 tax-free just because he was getting married. Simon Whitby now reports from Winchester Crown Court. Chris Kamara told the jury today how his basic wage was routinely topped up by undeclared cash payments. He, like other players who will be giving evidence, has been granted immunity from prosecution. So basically this began in 1985 and carried on until around 1990 when uh, Brian Hillier took over the chairmanship of the club and appointed the former Manchester United player Lou Macari as manager. Basically the club weren't able to afford players of a standard that would get them promoted through the divisions due to Football League rules. So what they did in order to get around that was just make bonus payments, give players cash payments, give them houses, cars, etc. Uh, on the side that weren't declared to the taxman in order to attract a better class of player to the club. Subsequently, they achieved successive promotions from the fourth to the first division in five years. So between 1985 and 1990, they actually rose up through the entire league up to the first division. The payments varied between players, according to the news reports I watched. Chris Kamara, who was at the club at the time, was being given an extra £30 a week in cash. While the nice. captain, <laughs> not bad, not bad. While the captain, Ross McLaren, was given £20,000 tax-free for a house and also £150 per week in order to pay off a loan he taken out on a car. So clearly some players worth more illegal payments than others. So Swindon achieved promotion to the First Division uh, in 1990, but then were found guilty of 36 charges of financial irregularities. Sunderland were promoted in their place, and the punishment was that Swindon Town would be relegated to the Third Division. So they've been relegated two divisions during the off-season. They were supposed to be in the First Division, they were relegated to the third. On appeal, they were allowed to go back to the second division, basically, where they had started the season before. So that punishment was um, commuted to just being effectively relegated at one division. On the 29th of July 1992, when this all came to a head in court, uh, the manager, Lou Macari, was cleared of all tax offences. It had been said that Macari and Hillier were the main men behind the scheme. Uh, Hillier and the accountant Farrow were both found guilty and Hillier went to prison for one year. Farrow received a suspended six-month prison sentence. Um, one addendum to this is that when his ban from football expired, he was banned for football for three years as well, uh, Brian Hillier actually came back into the local game and he was chairman of Countdown, a team that's uh, local to both of us where we grew up, for many years and retained that position uh, until his death in 2008. So Brian Hillier did eventually return to football in the end. Um, but there we go with, with what's going on in the news at the moment regarding Everton. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, original illegal payment scandal from the 1990s involving Swindon Town or Swindle Town, as they became known during <laughs> that period. I imagine that probably looks like quite small fry compared to some of the dealings that go on in the Premier League era these days and obviously Everton has, has just been busted for it whether that's fair or not I don't know the details but that's such a harsh punishment isn't it to go down two divisions for that crime so mm -hmm. I think I mean being docked 10 points for Everton seems a, a pretty lenient compared to that 
but I would absolutely love to see Man City playing in League Two next season. <laughs> so fingers crossed. Uh, the same detectives get involved in that particular football club, but uh, I won't hold my breath. Another thing to look out for if you do watch the YouTube clip that I watched is some flashes of the Swindon kit at the time, which had the GWR FM sponsor yes. with the classic pink and blue logo yeah, yeah. for GWR at the time, which is obviously fantastic. But yeah, no, an, an interesting one. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have something a little bit local as well. Oh, always keep it local when it comes to financial irregularity. Keep <laughs> it local. <laughs> From the streets of Las Vegas to the magic roundabout, <laughs> we've got you covered. So then that was crime in the 90s. We're going to leave the illegal activity behind now and uh, move on to tell you about what we've got coming up and the various other things that are going on. Um, Alex, did you enjoy that little dip into the murky past of the 90s? Yeah, it was interesting. It was something a little bit different for us, wasn't it? A little bit edgy, a bit risky, but uh, I think we we pulled it off without going too dark. And uh, yeah, I I can't deny I'm a big fan of of true crime and, and... detective and police procedurals on tv so there's it's definitely something that i have an interest in but um good episode i thought yeah absolutely but it's nice to pull back from the edge again isn't it and get back to a more safe distance exactly yeah (laughs) which is something i think we'll be doing next week is that right it is yes next time it's going to be our christmas episode it's the most wonderful time of the year and we're finally after 12 months coming back to do part two of the 90s christmas number ones countdown with our very, very good friends, Catherine and Dan from the Now That's What I Call Bullshit Pod. We're really looking forward to that one, aren't we? Yeah, it's going to be great. That was such a good episode last year. It feels like it was only a couple of months ago. I can't believe it's been a year, but I know, I know. Can't wait to uh, get back <laughs> on that and uh, potentially libel some other. 60s and 70s pop stars we also may have a live event in the works for the new year uh, we're still finalizing the details on that but we will let you know everything as soon as we've got that sorted out but it's something that we're really looking forward to and uh, really excited to do if we can do it we're very hopeful that it's uh, it's all going to get organized and uh, yeah we'll let you know as soon as it has been if you want to get in touch with us and talk about some 90s crimes that we haven't already mentioned or ones that we have mentioned and you've got some more details or some comments, or if you want to get in touch about anything we've ever talked about on the pod, then please do so using the links in our link tree below, which will be linked as always. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Anything you've got on any 90s subject, our lines of communication are always open. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, when we speak to Catherine and Dan about the Christmas number ones from 1995 to 1999, it's goodbye from me. I'm just off to jump in my red and white transit and nip down the M25. And I'm just off to jump in my Rove 800 Vitesse jam sandwich and uh, pursue you all the way. He's crashed!